trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Hi guys, how are you doing? Welcome to another episode of Treating You, presented to you by Bart's Health. This is the podcast that gives a voice to our 18,000 staff, shines a light on their day-to-day working lives, and show you, the public, some of their amazing stories and experiences. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm in the communications team here at Bart's Health. And in this podcast, we chat to the people who keep the trust going and the most inspirational stories from our patients. We discuss how they came to be at Bart's Health, their healthcare journey, and how they treat you. In this episode of Treating You, I'm speaking to Lisa Wilson. Lisa sits on the Royal London Hospital's Organ Donation Committee. She has been involved in a project to create an organ donation memorial sculpture in memory of loved ones who have donated at Bart's Health. A space has been identified and reserved in the renal entrance lobby of the hospital and an artist has been selected to design a stunning new design. However, the reason why Lisa sits on this committee is a very tragic one. In December 2015, Lisa's son Tom, who was 22 years old at the time, was playing the sport he loved, hockey, when he was hit on the back of the head in a training session. It was a freak accident and Tom suffered a brain hemorrhage and a heart attack on the pitch. Despite his teammates performing CPR on him, when he was brought to hospital, Lisa was told by the doctors in charge that he would be certified brain dead in 12 hours. Lisa asked to see an organ donor nurse after being asked if she would consider organ donation for Tom's body. Lisa was told that Tom had actually signed up to the organ donation register as a fresher at Nottingham Trent University, where he studied. Even more tragically, though, for Lisa, two months after Tom died, her husband Graham also suddenly died from sepsis. Graham asked Lisa before he died to keep Tom's memory alive, and she is doing just that. Thanks to Tom, his organ and tissue donation have saved and improved the lives of up to 50 people. Lisa has since met two recipients of Tom's organs, including a girl called Fatima, who had part of Tom's liver, and a gentleman called Gordon, who received Tom's heart. He was 60 at the time. He is now 66. In 2019, to honour his memory, two batons bearing his name were presented at that year's Westfield Health British Transplant Games in Newport and the World Transplant Games in Newcastle. One of those batons is on display in the foyer at Tom's old school, the Cooper's Company and Coborn School. In this episode, we talk about her journey of grief, the young man Tom was, and the husband and father Graham was. We also talk about the advocacy work Lisa does now on organ donation and why it's so important more people sign up to the register. This is Lisa's and Tom's story of how he gave people life after his tragic death. Lisa Wilson, welcome to Treating You. Thank you so much for coming on. I was sent your story by my big boss, John Hibbs. So, how are you? Thank you for coming all the way to our Canary Wharf offices to talk to me. Pleasure. Beautiful day today. Now, before we talk about the reason why you're here today, Lisa, and that day in December 2015, tell me first about how Tom came into the world and the type of boy, teenager and, and young man he was. Well... Tom came into the world on the 25th of June, 1993. 
obviously a memorable occasion, but I was so pleased to give husband Graham a boy. We didn't know what we were going to have, and that was very exciting. And right from the start, Tom was a beautiful baby. He was very calm. He was no trouble at all, although I didn't really know it because he was my firstborn. But no problems, and he was just a very happy baby right from the start. In his early years, he was very happy all the time. He loved playing and seeing diggers and <laughs> tractors in fields and piling rigs and all his books. He liked to be about people working and building things. And he really was angelic. I remember one day we were taking him and his sister Pippa to the zoo, to London Zoo. And we were on the tube and an elderly couple were sitting across from us and they just said, what beautiful children you've got but you loved that and oh I did I felt so proud but Tom Tom was very angelic very very sweet mm. and he was also he also paid a lot of attention to detail you, mm. you made me think with that question because I do remember in in his early days at school at junior school he obviously went to visit the local church and yes you know how the story is going to develop and that church plays a big part in my life later on but he painted the stained glass window at the end of the church a uh, fantastic detail with all the little diamonds all the little squares and that's the kind of boy he was he paid a lot of attention to detail he was very careful but he was also very good at concentrating and just such a happy lovely sounds boy. like a very emotionally intelligent boy he was. He was yeah. very clever. I, d I didn't really know it until he did his SATs at infant school and passed everything with flying colours. <laughs> um, but I don't know who he got that from, uh, me or his father, but that would be uh, debatable. But yes, it, it was a pleasure. And when did his love for hockey begin? When did that part of his personality begin to shine? Well, would you believe it? It would be from about the age of two years old I've got a photo of Tom by the hockey pitch because of course like a lot of parents they were dragged along to anything we were playing and my husband and I both played hockey so the children were there on the side of the pitch so it was in the jeans and then yeah. yeah I mean when he was born somebody gave him a tiny little hockey stick to put in his uh, crib so he was always going to like hockey wasn't he so very early on but watching us play and then by the age of four or five he was attending mini hockey sessions even though you couldn't play until you were seven so you weren't pushing he him the hockey mum there it really was him <laughs> running into that session he did he did love it and then as he began to get older and he kind of entered secondary school and adolescence and puberty what are your favorite memories of that period and, and you and him together as mother and son and also as a family Yes, I have lots of, looking back, lovely memories. I'll start with a negative you like. People have told me, was Tom any, ever any trouble? And just one thing I've remembered about when he did get into trouble at school was I was phoned by his head of year, out of the blue. Lisa, I need to tell you, Tom's got a detention. What? My Tom didn't ever get a detention. He said, well, unfortunately, it was the time of the Rugby World Cup. And Tom had been throwing one of those mini rugby balls around the tutorial room at tutor time, the form room. And three of his friends, they were throwing the ball around the room, waiting for the teacher to come in. And the ball accidentally hit one of his girls in the tutor group on the head. And the teacher said, I'm afraid we've had to give him a detention because the rugby ball hit one Sounds of the girls. Sounds a bit girls. harsh for an accident, doesn't well, it? Well, uh, it was a little sponge ball. But oh, okay. he said, I need to tell you, though, um, when I asked Tom, well, what have you got to say for yourself? He just said, 
well, if that had been my sister Pippa, she would have caught it. Which, I mean, we both <laughs> chuckled. But I said, I understand totally. And yes, Tom will have his attention. It's a very witty response as well. Yeah, like, well, that's for. Tom all over. He developed this really sharp sense of humour, whether that was being in the hockey club, the hockey family, talking to lots of people down there. I don't know, but his sense of humour really shone through. And Tom at school became one of the sports captains. And with his hockey, as hockey captain... He had that ability to get anybody else to play. So when they had a hockey match, obviously hockey wasn't the huge sport at school, rugby was, but he got his rugby playing mates to turn out and play hockey as well. And he didn't mind if the team lost. He just wanted as many people to play as possible. And his rugby playing school friends loved playing hockey with him. And that was the type of boy he was. He could get all of his friends to play Mm. as well. And what was it about Tom aside from his ability to corral people into sports politics or or participation that that made him so special to you and made him so special to the people around him as well? Maybe things that perhaps you didn't even see. I think it was his ability to read people very well. He could understand a situation. He could listen to his friends. His friends often talked to him. And I really perhaps could go on and and read a couple of letters. Mm, By all means, yeah, please um, do. After the the awful date happened, when he went to university, that's when he really shone as a, a young adult, I think. And this will sum up the type of person that Tom was, I think. I received two letters after he died, and they're still on the wall by my bed now, and I often look at them. One was from, I think, possibly, I think he was a manager, Will, of his university hockey team. And this was before a very big cup game. And it said, Tom, you are our best player. I always enjoy working with you. You are calm, understated, intelligent and aware on the pitch. And I trust you on the pitch above everyone else in the side. You are the brains of the team. In brackets, not saying much. Tom would have (laughs) laughed at that. And recognise most of what's happening on the pitch. Today, as per usual, you're my eyes on the pitch. Play your simple game again today, push pass off a drag and to attack the defender's left foot consistently. Today I need you to come out of your shell, be really vocal, want the ball and be a leader, Will. And I think that shows how Tom was. He was quite quiet often. He's very thoughtful, but he wasn't pushy. And I think that sums up, follow me rather than say what I do. Yes, but he would notice everything. And I love that. But this was the other letter, which I think sums up Tom. And I think it was very like, he was very like his father, Graham. Can I read this Mm, one out now? By all means. Dear Graham, Lisa and Pippa, I'm writing on behalf of the current men's hockey first team at Nottingham Trent. It would be impossible to describe the endless acts of kindness and overall impact that Tom had on each of us at Trent in one card. Instead, I'm going to try and put into words a memory that I've shared with numerous people that Tom knew within Trent Hockey. And how hard this was for another 22-year-old to write this letter to me, I think, at the time. And for listeners, it's handwritten as well. Yes, yes. Joining a university sports team can be a daunting experience. And when I joined Trent Hockey, I was nervous. I was nervous about the unknown and I was nervous about trying to fit into a team that were already friends. The other first years and I arrived to our first training session. I was petrified. I was walking into a team of lads who were all older than me and they were stood in a large group in the centre of the pitch. 
Tom was the first to approach myself and the others. He instantly made myself and the others feel at ease and it made meeting the rest of the team an easy experience. Tom had the ability to make you feel instantly welcome, as if he was already your friend. Looking back, I now know that it wasn't just a feeling at all. He was genuinely already a friend. He didn't judge you. He didn't try and work you out. He was just there for you the moment you met him. Towards the end of my first year, I was chatting to another first year and we both agreed that we wanted to be like Tom as a senior, the senior who everyone looked up to, who was always looking out for everyone and the senior who held the whole team together like glue. And I think that encapsulates Tom perfectly. If we could adopt even one of his many qualities, we would be a better person for it. I hope you can find some comfort in knowing that Tom will be forever a part of Nottingham Trent Hockey Club as the person who helped make it the loving, caring family that it is today. Your sincerely, Matt. I mean, I do choke because I didn't always know Tom. Tom went away to university and I missed him those three years mm. and the year he came back. And, oh, I'm just so proud to know that. But he wasn't just there on the pitch. He was there in the clubhouse afterwards. <laughs> he was so social. You wouldn't he, have it any other way, fun. would you? <laughs> no, I know. And that was an important part of sport. And my husband, G, always said, OK, on the pitch, yes, you, you want to win. But afterwards, you go and talk to all the opposition in the clubhouse. You make sure they get their tees first. And then you talk to them. That's an important part of sport and hockey, talking to people after the game. And, wow, don't we need to remember that sometimes mm. now? And a lot mm. of fans need to remember that too. It is just a game and people are important but that does sum up Tom beautifully he cared but he was also a role model and he noticed he noticed when people needed talking to he would notice that person who was on their own and go up and talk to them just like my husband would at the bar <laughs> <laughs> take me back to that day in December 2015 if you can Lisa and the events surrounding it so how did it begin and when did you find out something had gone terribly wrong? It was Tuesday the 8th of December and it was 9 o'clock at night and I was in the kitchen at home and I'd just been preparing myself for a course I was running the next day. In my school role as a PE teacher and deputy head of centre, I also trained local PE teachers and yes, I was running a course the following day and i just finished preparing and... The phone went, nine o'clock at night. Quite unusual for the home phone to go, to go. We use mobiles a lot. And I answered it. And it was Tom's, one of Tom's best friends, Rob. And he said, Lisa, I said, Rob, um, that's unusual to get a call from you. And he said, I need to tell you, something's happened. Tom's had an accident. Now, a couple of things went through my mind. First of all, it was, oh, Tom's gone and broken an ankle at hockey training and I've got to go to Whips Cross Emergency Department Casualty and I've got a course tomorrow and I'm going to be up till four in the morning. So I thought an ankle injury or something. Mm. And then I thought, well, Tom's not meant to be training tonight. He'd got an injury. I saw him just two days before on the Sunday. We'd had a wonderful, unusual weekend at home because Pippa had come home from university because she had an indoor match at East Quinstead. Tom had come home on the off chance and we all had a lovely takeaway that Saturday night in the kitchen and then the boys stayed up to watch match of the day. I remember kissing Tom on the head and saying, night Tom, and it was night mum. And I said, I won't see you in the morning because we're taking Pippa off to hockey early. 
and he did leave the house locked up and went home but I thought Tom's not meant to be training he's injured but obviously being Tom he'd gone along to training to hear what the coach said because on the Saturday it was going to be their last league game of the season but he said I'm not going to train I need to sit this one out because of the cut on my leg just a week before he'd got hit on the shin pad and it made a cut and it got a little bit infected and I said on the Sunday maybe you need to go and get that checked out and go on some antibiotics it didn't look great but I said to Rob what do you mean there's been an accident? Tom's not meant to be training. And then in the background, I heard somebody say, is he still breathing? And at that point, something shot through me like an arrow in my kitchen. My world fell apart. He just said, Lisa, you need to come quickly. It's serious. Tom's seriously hurt. At which point, I stopped the conversation. My husband, it happened to be his night He'd retired then. He'd only just retired. And he was in the pub with his uh, with his brother in Atminster. I thought, what do I do? I thought, right, I need to phone Graham and we need to get to a hockey pitch, which is three quarters an hour away. I phoned Graham. He didn't answer, of course. He couldn't hear in the pub. I thought, I'll try once more. If he doesn't pick up, I've just got to go. But Graham did pick up. His brother drove him home very quickly. I never even asked him, did you have full pints, both of you, mm. on the table? I don't know. But they picked me up and on the way to Old Loutonians Hockey Club in Chigwell, about three quarters of an hour away, my phone went away again and it was a policeman. So on the way, I'm on the, in there in the car and the policeman said, Lisa, you're on the way. How far away are you? We need you here quickly, but do drive carefully. I know what will be going through your mind. And I said, we're about 10 minutes away. And we got to the pitch. I'd grabbed a bottle of water. I think I was drinking that. I had my old tracksuit on. We got to the pitch and there were blue lights everywhere flashing. There was a helicopter on the pitch. There were police. I jumped out of the car. I think we hardly spoke on the journey. I ran. I ran past the clubhouse and I was aware of all of his teammates, Tom's teammates, standing in a line looking out of the window in silence and I ran past the clubhouse and I could see them in the goal mouth at the far end of the pitch and I rushed over and I saw Tom lying there just lying there a few wires people working on him hardly wearing anything I rushed over and knelt down by him and I think I think I knew then as a mum he was unconscious and I, I knew the, the graveness of the situation. And he was just so cold. I held his hand straight away. He was so cold. And I just said, he's so cold, he's so cold. Please make him warmer. And I think they got a silver foil blanket. And they explained, we've got Tom's heart working again. Tom had had a cardiac arrest as well. But they said he was hit on the back of the head by a hockey stick, apparently, and immediately lost consciousness. And the coach was standing, the manager was standing at the side of the pitch. I later heard that, yes, Jerry saw it. He saw Tom get hit by the stick and he heard it. And all I know, and I still like to know more about this, was Tom just apparently crumpled. I don't know if he said anything, but even the goalkeeper saw it all. And Tom just crumpled. And his teammates rushed over although at the time the managers just sent the boys up the other end of the pitch they thought Tom had just got hurt they didn't realize the seriousness and he said go up to the other end of the pitch carry on training 
But when Tom apparently began to start blue, two of his teammates, the coach that night, and one of his teammates who had just had CPR training the week before at work, they immediately realized Tom had stopped breathing and the head injury, obviously brain injury, had caused the heart to stop. And I'm going to tell you this because I think it's so important, Freddie. The two boys gave Tom CPR until the emergency services got there. As a mum, I should have been doing that. I'd have done anything for Tom. I'd have given him CPR. But they did. They were there. And apparently the ambulance had to make a detour because they knew there was no defibrillator in the clubhouse. And they had to make a detour of about 20 minutes to pick one up. Really important in this story, I think. But they carried on CPR until they got there. And they took over and they got his heart starting again. Started again. But... Why I'm telling you this is in the whole story, and the boys were distraught afterwards when I went back to the clubhouse on the Saturday, and that's another bit of a story. The two lads that did the CPR, absolutely distraught. But I said, look, we don't know, but because you performed that and kept the heart going and the blood pumping around the body and oxygen going in, maybe you played a very, very important part in what Tom was able to do next Mm. because when you ask me about our decision, then that's important that they gave the CPR, I think. And just ever, ever if you're in that situation when you think somebody might need CPR and there might not be any hope, don't stop, don't stop, because you don't know know what it might Mm. lead to. So that's why I'm telling you that. Mm. But yeah, they said, we're going to rush Tom now, actually to Cambridge. They didn't take him to Cambridge, to Addenbrooke's. It changed and they rushed him to Whitechapel and we were blue-lighted as well, my husband and I, in a car, police car with a driver to Whitechapel Hospital. We hardly spoke. Mm. I made one call to my uh, head teacher to say, I'm running a course tomorrow. I don't think I'll be there. Please cancel it somehow. I thought about doing that because I thought I'm not going to be at school tomorrow. I think this is this is very bad. Mm. Tell me about when you got to the hospital now. What was that conversation like with the clinicians what was the atmosphere like how were you feeling what was going on at that point so we were taken to the doors of the Whitechapel casualty I'll never forget that little that little walk and my husband and I were met at Tom's bedside we saw where Tom was Tom was in a bed in casualty and I immediately noticed even though he was still unconscious the nurses were talking to him Tom we're just doing this Tom we're just doing that which I thought, A, was respectful, but B, probably gave me too much hope that he could hear. But the, the doctor in charge that night came over to us immediately and said, please come through to this little room. Tom's just come back from having a head scan. And he took us into this room and there was a computer with a picture on the screen, very black and white. And he said, I don't know how much you know about head injuries. I said, well, I'm a PE teacher. Try me. I, I have seen pictures of, uh, of brains and skulls. And he said, well, you see all this black. He said, your son has suffered a serious brain hemorrhage, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. He said, um, we're a bit puzzled, but something as if there was an aneurysm in the brain, something blue and all the black here, this is blood. He said, I'm really sorry to tell you we've made all the calls we can. There isn't an operation that can save Tom. Mm. There's nothing, no operation we can do. And I think at that point I was in denial. I was thinking, no, no, there must be something. What are you telling me there's nothing? He said, 
we're going to make Tom comfortable and then we're going to take him up into intensive care. And I can tell you in about 12 hours time, Tom will be tested to show that he's brain dead. Would you like to make any calls at this point? Totally in denial. We went back into casualty and they found me a phone because I said, I need to get his sister here, mm. his sister Pippa. She's at university in Birmingham. It was about half past 11 at night at that point. And I phoned Pippa on their phone because I think by that time my phone was already running out of charge. And Pippa couldn't answer her phone. She was fast asleep. I thought, oh no, what, what do I do? I can't wake Pippa. And I remember phoning one of my close friends in Hornchurch who I knew whose daughter might be up there who also went to University of Birmingham. And I said, Jill, Jill, what can I do? And she said, Emily's up there. She's up there because she's got a lecture tomorrow. I'll send Emily round to bang on the flat door to wake them up. And Emily did. She went round, banged on the door. Somebody opened it, went up to tell Pippa that she needed to answer her phone and stayed with Pippa, bless her, until somebody was able to drive Pippa back to the hospital. But what a terrible thing for my mm. friend's friend, Emily, who's a close friend, to tell Pippa, your brother has been seriously hurt. You've got to get to London as soon as you can. And what time is that in at night? Is that About midnight, midnight by that gosh. point. And we were able to talk to Pippa and said, this looks really bad, we're afraid. We, we don't know Tom's in hospital, but you need to get here as soon as possible. And when did she get there? The next day, about next nine day. o'clock in the morning, mm. eight o'clock, I think. But by that time, we'd been with Tom all night in intensive care. Tom just wired up, but looking like he was asleep. He had some swelling on his neck, but that was all. Tom still looked angelic. He looked perfect. By this time, Tom is now six foot tall from being the, the little toddler, from being quite small at school. Six foot, 22-year-old, handsome, lying there looking like he was asleep, lying in the same position he was on the sofa just a few days before watching Match of the Day. I was in denial. But it was in the middle of the night. It was my husband, Graham, very calmly. And we were both calm. You see people when they're told that something terrible's happened and they cry and they scream and they... There's the outpouring. There yeah, was yeah. none of that. We were still very calm. But I had a lot of tears that night thinking this can't be happening to us because only days before we'd had the Chinese with with uh, the takeaway with Tom and Pippa I think we'd actually said crikey have we got this right you two Tom was working in Oxford Street for Lambert Smithampton loving life he'd left university got a great job living in Bermondsey Street with his cousin Andrew in a fantastic flat in London walking in the morning to work as if he was a city boy Pippa was at University of Birmingham doing really well we said wow how have we got this right life's mm. great Graham just retired things were looking really good hockey was doing really well for graham as a writer and then suddenly we're in intensive care and graham calmly said to me lise i don't think there's anything anybody can do for tom now but tom can do something for others organ donation and if my stomach hadn't turned a thousand times that night it turned again and i i'm so proud that my husband graham thought of that at that point my mind was nowhere near that. I was just thinking, Tom's going to wake up from this. And I did turn to the nurse on duty and said, how long have you worked here? I think he was called James. And he said, 15 years. And I said, have you ever seen anybody wake up from this? And he said, Lisa, they're going to do tests, and I think it will show you that Tom won't wake up from this. And 
I think he did the right thing. Did you appreciate no that honesty? Looking yeah. back, there was no beating around the bush. What was the point of giving me hope? That's worse, I think. Yeah. I think so. And he said they will do tests which will show you. But they'll wait until your daughter Pippa gets here. And by that time, Daisy, Tom's lovely girlfriend, had arrived. More family members had arrived. And I think we were beginning to think, this is the end, unbelievably, for Tom. Mm. Losing a child is something so unimaginable. I cannot possibly comprehend to know what it's like, Lisa. I've interviewed people who have lost children, but especially through something such as a freak accident where you had no build-up, you had no preparation, it was such a, sh a shocking thing to go through. What was that journey of grief like for you? When did you go from denial to acceptance and then you know, possibly the stereotypical stages of grief if you did go through them? Yes, and you you never, Freddie, you never think it's going to happen to you. You don't consider that. The grief, I think very important was, one, we were present when they did the tests on Tom. They did them twice. In fact, after the second round of tests, they did say, well, when is time of death? And she said, oh, the doctor, it was after the first set. It was 12, 10. You don't forget times like mm. that. And I think then, then I just knew. I went very calm and thought, right, Tom is now dead. Because remember, it's very difficult. They, Tom looked like he was asleep. And the grief. The grief came very much from family members at that point. They cried. They really were distraught. I don't remember too much about it, really. I must have cried as well. I know now that I'm all cried out. There, there <laughs> became a time when we were all cried out. Tom's friends had come to the hospital. Pippa had spent the night with... Oh, she spent the next night with him um, while they prepared Tom for organ donation. His friends came. His hockey friends came back mm. that were with him that night. They were very difficult times. But then the grief, well, the grief is still there. But I think... Our friends kicked into action. A very close friend who'd also lost a child, one of our close friends who lives very near to us, her son was killed. He played hockey with Tom at the hockey club, killed in a car accident at the age of 16. And once she found out, in fact, the whole world found out very quickly, because, of course, media mm. and Tom being played a very good level of hockey, very high up in hockey. My husband working for England hockey. The England hockey team were playing at the time. They immediately stopped for a minute's silence. But immediately people found out. My friend who had lost a child phoned and said, right, I'll contact the undertakers for you and I'll get a lot of milk bottles together. And I said, Pat, what on earth do you mean? She said, you'll need milk bottles, the flowers. The flowers will come. You won't have enough vases. There were people like that in our lives who just knew what was coming. And, well, the grief. Do we talk about getting home for the first time and finding the porch full of flowers? Do I talk about asking to go back and seeing Tom? Oh, I suppose saying goodbye to Tom at the theatre doors. That was horrendous. Seeing Tom in the morgue mm. the next day. All the realisation that he really is dead. He really is that not coming back. That continual next stage of... Yeah, yeah, and then it carries on with you suddenly enter a house and you see his possessions. Mm. You're given his work bag by 
somebody in the hospital saying, the policeman, here's his bag and his things that were hanging up in the changing room that night. Here's the shirt he was wearing at work that mm. day, folded up in his bag. the smell of him is bag. on it. And, yeah. <gasps> Don't. And it's getting home and that hitting you, right? He's really not coming back now. Then the funeral and then the weeks and then the years and even now. There are things, hearing a piece of music. Do you know, I really didn't like the song Build Me Up Butterfly until I was in the car with one day with Tom coming back from a hockey session. And Tom happened to say, Mum, I love this song. And it was one I'd never liked. Well, guess what? It's one of my favourite songs now mm. because I knew he liked that reminder. it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yes. And so it's gradual and you go through all sorts of different emotions. But I think you end up or I ended up thinking and finding out you're not the only one. All of a mm. sudden, my friends down the road who had lost a child, you know, I wasn't the only one. We weren't the only people who'd ever lost a child. I thought I was the only one who'd ever said yes to organ donation. That will come up in a minute. And joining the donor family network, you're not the only one. There are lots mm. of people out there. And when you see that other people have survived as well, and what they've done, and everybody's different, everybody does things differently, and your friends say, do what works for you, then you realise you're not the only mm. one out there. Having that family support group and especially the friends you said who had lost a child was that really important for you because a they knew what you had gone through and they had that lexicon or language or ability to relate to your experience in ways that you know I can try but I will never know what that is like unless I go through it mm. it's so important and I think that's where people like my mum who's, who's passed away now People have gone through the same thing. My mum had lost a sister, and, and when you talk to other people, they give you the strength. But if I can just say how my mum helped me. I remembered my own mum at my father's funeral when I was distraught, but my mum held her head up high and talked to everybody at the funeral. And when, when straight after Tom had died, and the first Saturday, the hockey club, Old Louts said, would you like to come back? You do things which you think are going to help, and we thought we must go back to the hockey pitch. We must go down to that spot where Tom fell and put some flowers on the pitch. And on that first Saturday, we went back. And I remember as we arrived at the hockey club, I could hear all the noise. The hockey club was packed. And then it went silent mm. as they saw us approach. And I said to my husband, Graham, I said, I can't go in. I can't go in. He said, we'll just go down to the pitch. But then I remembered my mum and how my mum at my dad's funeral had gone in, held up, head, head up high and thanked everyone for coming. I thought, what would my mum do? And my mum was still alive at that point, but she wasn't there at the time. And I thought, mum would go in there and say to everybody, thank you for coming. And we did. The doors opened and we went in because I remembered what she said. And there are lots of times you remember what other people have told you. My friend who had lost a child said, Lisa, you're now in the club nobody ever wants to be in. But there are lots of people in that club who will help you. And yes, mm. you do. You hang on to things like that. Mm. And they get you through. Tragically, Lisa, just two months after you lost your son, you then lost your life partner, your husband, Graham, too. So... How on earth did you cope with two massive bombshells arriving in your life? That's where I thought, what have I done to deserve this? Mm. Mm. If you had faith, I imagine you'd be questioning it. <sighs> Absolutely. And even the vicar who came round after Graham died. Maybe he was questioning his he home. Did. <laughs> he did. He spoke at 
Tom's funeral and when Graham died and he came back to my house, he said, I didn't expect to be here now. And he said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you God needed Tom more than you. And with what's happened now, he said, there are no answers. And mm. he said, I'm not liking being here today. Mm. It's hard for you. And when Graham became ill, I launched myself into helping Graham to get better. But I hadn't even been to collect Tom's ashes. Graham and hospital said, what about Tom's ashes? I said, well, they've, they've asked me to go and pick them up, G. Because we called him G. He was G Wiz in the office. He was a whiz on the computers, apparently. <laughs> My nickname was D. So when I knew Graham was called G, G and D, I, I knew it was going to be love at, <laughs> love at <laughs> first sight. It would work. But I, I said, I might go and pick them up. And I did go and pick up the ashes. And I said to G in hospital, Tom's home now. And he said, I said, I've carried him back home. And he said, I'm meant to be doing that with you. I said, well, I've, I've been to get them. And Graham was in hospital, but he was always coming home. Yes, they'd discovered a brain tumour and he'd had a week of chemo and we'd been watching the rugby on the television in hospital, but they said, look, Graham will come home on Monday. We'll discharge him then. He'll be a day patient for chemo. And then suddenly on that Saturday morning, I got a phone call to say, you need to come to the hospital now. Graham's poorly. He's got an infection. I said, well, I make my coffee. I'll, I'll come as I normally do all day. No, you need to come now. Did you have that same sense that you did when you were on the phone with Tom? Or did you think, no, this no. can't possibly be it again? No, no he's yeah. got an infection. But they told me you can get an infection with chemo when you haven't got any white blood cells. But no, they'll give him the antibiotics and he'll be home. No, it didn't cross my mind once. I didn't even go next door to tell my mother-in-law what had happened. I just thought, right, get to the hospital. They give him, they'll give him the antibiotics. And I got there and within four hours of me arriving, Graham had died. Pippa walked in. Pippa happened to be in Essex for a 21st party that weekend. And I was able to get a call to say, can somebody go and pick Pippa up? Pippa walked in the door. Graham looked at Pippa, cried one little tear and passed away. And we just stood there and they worked on Graham. And I just said, no, no, this can't be happening. I can't lose my husband. I just lost my son. No, no. And and he did, he took his last breath, and I just thought, no. And we sat there, Pippa and I, couldn't believe what had happened. And Graham's mother came in with his sister, and I just said, not a word to anybody, please, not a phone call. I knew with Tom it went around the world straight away, but I said, don't tell anyone at the moment. Mm. Pippa and I need to sit here and just... Digest it, yeah. process it, yeah. And I think I said to G, you're not doing this, you're not seeing Tom before me. <laughs> Um, unbelievable, but we sat there, we thought about it. And you know what? We left the hospital, nobody told us what to do. We left Queen's Hospital, got in the car, I drove home. People said, Mum, you all right to drive? I said, well, what do we do? We've got to go home. I drove the car home, we sat in the front room, we just said, we've got to plan another funeral. Well, we know what to do, we did it for Tom. Well, you almost got on to autopilot. Do it for Dad. Absolutely. Yeah. I think as a teacher, all the time, the same with Tom and Tom's funeral. And I question now, you might have seen that just two days before Tom's funeral, we went on BBC Breakfast. Mm. We spoke. Why I did that, why I forced Graham to do that. I mean, Graham agreed because he was in media and I think it was the organ donation part. We wanted to tell people what we'd done yes. and how important mm. organ donation was going to be in this. But I must have been in shock. I must have been on autopilot. I must have just gone into teacher mode and 
gone into organising and blanked everything out. Because even now, actually, a lot of things are buried in the back of my brain. Your brain protects you when it something does, awful yeah. happens. To stop it's a trauma from, response, isn't it? It is, yeah. and I know things are still buried, and only occasionally now do I remember things. And this interview, some of the questions you've asked me have, have brought things back that I had forgotten, and it's nice to remember them. You've made me remember the nice things, because mm. actually I want the horrible things to go. Mm. I don't want to think about them anymore. They, mm. they could make me ill. It mm. worries about... It worried me what this trauma was going to do to Pippa and I, what mm. nasty things it would, would make happen to my body. Mm. And you do need the happy memories. But yes, into autopilot. And we did. We just thought, what would Graham, and all the time now, I think, what would G and Tom want me to be doing and saying? But we try to think, what would G want people to say and do at his funeral? We just try to do the best that we could. You spoke there about Pippa. How important has she been in supporting you through this period? She's been amazing, absolutely amazing. And I think we just think we're the two girls together now. We've had many, many deep conversations. We've talked about what would it have been like if it had been the other way around? What would it have been like if it was Tom and G who were left because something happened to Pippa and I? We've talked about... Would have been harder to organise Christmas presents. Oh, she said, "Mum." <laughs> I know that with, with, with two older si two sisters. Mum, I dread to think what it would have been like with <laughs> with Dad around. I know Dad said, "I'm, I'm so upset that Tom's gone, not to carry on the family name Wilson, and Tom should be here to look after you too." I, I know he was cross about Tom, but then when they both went, for me. Pippa was my rock. She hasn't been right in every decision she's made with me. She, she will say that. But the bond between us is incredible. I hope I've done lots of things to make her proud. I hope I've done lots of things to make her think you can carry on from tragedies. I did the best I could and I've done the best I can taking her away on girly holidays. <laughs> I thought, right, where should we go for Christmas? We're not having Christmas at home, having lost both boys. Mm. We can't do what we always used to do. I've got to do something completely different. And we went Australia. away. <laughs> it was very similar. It was very hot. It was very girly. I can tell you it was uh, the unlimited, what do you call it? The unlimited drinks oh we, yeah, what bottomless brunch yes yes <laughs> unlimited Every girl everything loves a bottomless brunch. the cocktails <laughs> it was unlimited what would be the most girly holiday that we could go on that the boys wouldn't like i think they would have loved it actually all the snorkeling and the diving and the uh, the pristine beaches but i've done things hopefully to try and show her that you can carry on but to begin with and even now perhaps um i do choke but she's been Take breath. Time. Take time. She's been my reason to carry on. She's been my reason to live because I know my husband, Graham, would have wanted me to do the best for her, to show her that there's a life out there. And I don't normally choke, but we have to carry on living. Tom and G would have carried on living. They would have made the most of life. They'd have been in the bar a lot. I know that. <laughs> um, but they would have carried on and we would have expect them to carry on and to make the most of life. We're, we're lucky we're here. There are people who want to be here. I just think of Deborah James, the most beautiful mm. Deborah James who's in front of everybody's mind at the moment. There are people who want to live who can't and we are lucky enough to be here and I try and show Pippa right we've got to make the most of our lives now and if it's a case of doing things for others who need help I thought shall I go and volunteer should we help people who are not as fortunate as we are 
let's do something to make the most of our lives and mm. make our boys proud of us. I think they're proud. So, well, I hope so, but mm. I'm just trying to show Pippa, right, come on, carry on now. Mm. Yes, we've we've gone through tragedies, but other people have as well, and mm. they're doing really well. So do whatever makes you happy, what makes you feel you're fulfilling your life. And so I just try to do everything for her. Mm. Um, I haven't done it terribly well at times. <laughs> I think you have. <laughs> I'm trying, Freddie, I am trying. <laughs> Having to adapt to that new way of living essentially you you've now had to take on the dad role as well as the mum and we know that mums and dads offer very different things how has that been as a mother kind of having to do the things that g would have done for pippa oh yes i just can't do it i haven't even tried she often says to me dad wouldn't have said that or <laughs> dad would was know that trying to get her way oh, though was that <laughs> dad would know what to do now that's her favorite dad would have known what to do and he always did flipping well know what to do <laughs> he was the uh, the clever head he always did know what to do but I've just said well I'm trying to do my best for you Pip and in the background in the back of my head is Tom saying tell her to man up that would have <laughs> really wound her up pull her off the sofa when she's the one lying on the sofa and he he wanted it he'd pull her off or if she got up to go and do something he'd take the place on the sofa and say Romford rules he said mum tell her tell her to man up or don't put up with it don't buy her that handbag don't buy her that really expensive handbag that she wants make her pay for it he's often in the back of my head telling me what to do but yes I I can't be him. Oh, he was brilliant. He was funny. He was handsome. He was the life and soul of the party. And it makes me realise, actually, that a lot of my social life did revolve around G. And I lost so much when he died. The hockey family were brilliant. Mm. And something that worried him, when Tom died playing hockey, we played hockey. He wrote about hockey. Hockey's a wonderful game. He said, what am I going to say to people now? Because it's you don't normally lose your life playing hockey. There might be a serious injury and blood and stitches, but you don't die playing that game and the game we love. And he was worried. But the hockey family have stuck by me. The people at the top have still invited us to watch games and I find it hard to watch hockey, but I still love it. Pippa's managed to get back on the pitch and even play. How good is that? I'm mm. very proud of her doing that. But the hockey family have responded and helped and I think I've kept in touch with a lot of them and they often talk about G and Tom. And if I had walked away from the hockey family, I wouldn't have those people still telling me the funny stories or telling me the you memories. Lose, you lose Tom. I, yeah. I love hearing mm. stories. I love hearing things. Even just a few weeks ago, I went to the hockey writer's lunch and somebody told me something else I didn't know about G, something else he'd done for them. And I love hearing that. And particular about Tom. Because in bereavement you're probably going to ask me how we've coped and you know you, you go home and you look at possessions and I, I said to somebody well what do I do with all their clothes now and somebody said to me it's a really sensible thing okay you might want the wardrobe space now because Pip came home from university with masses of dresses you know I, <laughs> I kind of did want some wardrobe space but hadn't got the heart to move things out she said, put things in suitcases put them in one of the sheds outside you're not throwing anything away, but you've, you've moved them. And when you feel ready, go back and look in that suitcase and decide what you want to do next. And I can tell you, not one of G uh, Tom's things has gone. Tom had a very short life, 22 years, longer than some perhaps. But 
I haven't been able to give anything away of Tom's. Oh, except, ah, one of my last memories was just a week before he died. Mum, I need some more suits for work. <laughs> oh, I went shopping with him. Oh, it was delightful. I bought him two new suits. Was people saying, don't be buying him yeah, new suits? I thought yeah. it was your turn, Tom. <laughs> and he was so tall by then, six foot. And bought him two new suits and waistcoats. And I remember walking down Bond Street with him. It was Christmas time. And he said, it doesn't get much better than this, Mum, does it? Because we were walking back to the flat. And he actually stopped and he put his he put his chin on my head and put his arms around me to look at the lights because he was so much taller than me. <laughs> a wonderful moment. He often did that. And when it came to his clothes, I thought, right, he's worn. He's actually worn the two suits. He hadn't worn the waistcoats. He probably thought, I'm never going to wear waistcoats, Mum. But I thought he looked great in them. And very quickly, because the suits were so new, I actually was able to take those two suits to the charity shop because I thought somebody else should use these while they're so new. But I've kept most of his things other than uh, those two suits. But I found it easier to perhaps take some of Graham's things mm -hmm. to the charity shops. He had nine pairs of, of trousers in the wardrobe still with labels on. Can you believe that? <laughs> I think yeah. every man has got experience uh, with that. Don't. So <laughs> they've gone. <laughs> but that was very good advice. And, uh, you know, th things I've done like that, keeping mm. in touch with people or listening to people's advice, listening to his friends. But you find out who your friends are actually as well, Freddie, mm. in moments like this. The people who cross the aisles in Sainsbury's because they don't want to talk to you because they probably don't want to They upset don't want to stare you. at the pain, do they? No. no. And that's why I try not to cry. People don't want to talk to somebody crying. Even though it's not them that's have gone through it, they it's you. <laughs> they don't know how to cope. Yeah, but they haven't got the emotional intelligence. <laughs> well, maybe I haven't known in the past what to say to somebody who's upset or, or in a difficult situation. But I know that any card, any letter, you know, I've kept everything. Well, they are all in their in their boxes, in their possessions boxes, the memory boxes I've got. I've kept them all, every cutting, but every word anybody's written, because how brave of somebody to put pen to paper. But any comment anybody can make helps, believe me. Mm. Even if you don't like what somebody says at the time, if you think about it, they might actually be right. So always speak to somebody or give them the hug. Coronavirus is very difficult. We're not being able to have hugs from people. But yeah, mm. the, the friends, the ones who I've lost, well, I hope they come back at some point. Mm. Mm. You said there that Tom is speaking in your ear sometimes when it comes to giving Pippa a new bag or not giving Pippa a new bag. And you've done all this amazing work, Lisa. And before we move on to the advocacy work that you do, if Tom or G were listening to this pod, and I'm sure they are somewhere, what do you think they would say to you and what do you think you would say to them? It's lucky I've already been emotional because that one would have set me off, <laughs> Freddie, because a journalist asked me that on camera and that did, uh, that did upset me. But I can handle that one now. And I think the first port of call would be make sure Pippa is always the centre of your life and she will be. She will always be the most important person to me. And I think they'd be saying... Do whatever makes you happy, Mum. Mm. Do whatever makes you happy. I think so. I can't replace a child. As for Graham, I need happiness. And they'd be saying, do whatever makes you happy. If somebody does ask you to go out, go out and don't feel guilty. Do you know, only just recently, probably just a month or so ago, for the first time, Freddie, I danced. Because for a long time, I felt guilty smiling. I felt guilty laughing. 
you think, why should you be laughing and having a joke and having fun now? They're not. You should still be upset. In that pool, swimming mm. in it. Yeah. You know people used to wear black in the olden days. Mm. You know, when do you come out of black? When do people think it's all right for her to laugh and look happy and Did be enjoying Did you feel the reaction herself? from others more than internally did you feel like if you were out and about and you were smiling they were thinking oh why is she oh you think she's gotten over it too quickly has she no i'll tell you this i went back to work probably too quickly as a teacher you do you think what do i do next my mm. friend who lost her husband a year after me she said her husband died she went around the corner to buy some milk minutes hours after she thought people are going to be coming around i need milk she thought i walked down the street thinking i'm going buying milk i've just lost my husband and people are looking at me they don't know mm. you do things i went back to work and i dressed up i had to go to work you have to look professional somebody who i thought was very close to me turned to somebody else and say she's over it now look at her dressed up well there we go She's over it. Exactly but what it, I feared. You mm. hide behind it. You hide behind the yeah. makeup. You yeah. hide behind the nice clothes. Because you do have to carry on. And I think where this is leading is me dancing for the first time a couple of months ago. They would say, it's okay to dance, Mum. They knew I loved dancing. I helped Tom to dance like any mum would. I said, you've got to learn to be able to turn like this. You know, you're going to have to dance. You've got to have dance. rhythm in some yes, sense. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> or else the girls won't like no. you. And for the first time, I really enjoyed it. And I think they would say to me, it's okay. It's okay to actually do those things now and have fun and laugh. Mm. I hope they would be saying that. I think so. And I, I hope, so. and this is quite important to me in the story, I suppose, is when G died, one of my first reactions when I said, you're not allowed to see Tom before me, and obviously he was, I thought, they're together. And even at his funeral, what kept me going was, they're together now. Now, there are a lot of mums out there who would, you worry as a mum. I couldn't believe I'd worry about Tom when he was dead you worry about them well they're alive probably till your dying day i didn't know how you'd worry about them afterwards is he okay up there what's he thinking he wants to be here i kept thinking tom doesn't want to be up there he'll be so upset he wants to be down here with us and when graham died i just thought well at least they're together i think i was a bit cross that perhaps tom took g instead of me but then he would take his father because they were so close mm. and i remember tom g at tom's funeral saying i've just lost my most prized possession and thinking yeah you have a dad his son would be really prized possession and at least they were together and so yeah what keeps me going is well yeah g would have had his birthday recently his 70th birthday i hope they were having a drink up there together <laughs> i am lucky i can think that mm. i have no idea what happens next but it's a nice thought for me mm. that at least they're together at least tom's got somebody to have fun with tell me about the advocacy work you've done. So you've obviously done that interview with Christine Lampard on Lorraine and spoken about Tom and this organ donation story. And thanks to Tom, 50 people's lives have been saved and improved through his organs and tissue donation, and two of whom you happen to meet in person. So tell me about that experience and this wider journey. Yes. Well, you think, right, what do I do next? You've lost both your boys went back to work but that was quite hard going back to work too early but you do it because you don't want to think about other things you want to to block everything out and then I began to have advice for example you could join the donor family network so there I was at work but I joined the donor family network 
And that's when you find out you're not alone and that lots of people have said yes to organ donation, done the same thing as you. And somebody from the Donor Family Network phoned me, a wonderful lady called Sue. And she regularly phoned me just to touch base. And she said yes to organ donation for her son, Martin. And when I was at work, I was aware all the time that I wasn't the only one. And people at work were talking to me about the organ donation. They wanted to know more, my colleagues. Even some of the pupils asked me because I began to start speaking about organ donation. Uh, I was in the local paper to begin with. And then the Donor Family Network gave me opportunities to talk about organ donation. And I realized then, well, actually, I can talk about organ donation. I can talk about it quite calmly. And people listen. And if I make the difference to one person, for example, if one person listening here's my story, and then is in the same awful situation but says yes to organ donation, somebody else's life could be saved. So I could make a difference here. And I began to think, I think I can make more difference in talking about organ donation than I can in teaching. And in teaching, you've got to be so on the ball Mm. for the pupils. And I began to realise my mind was elsewhere, and it was quite a challenge teaching and talking about organ donation, going to all the things that people wanted for me to attend. So that's when I decided to retire from teaching early and began to talk more and more. And then I heard about the London Ambassadors for Organ Donation and I was asked to become a London Ambassador. And so more and more people were hearing. And then from the Donor Family Network, the chairman, David Nix, contacted me and said, we've got an idea, Lisa. We'd like to come up with a sculpture, Tom's Batten, it's going to be called. Do you mind if we create Tom's Batten? And I thought, Wow, what a legacy, something to be made about Tom. And they designed the most beautiful uh, sculpture, which is two bronze hands. It's very heavy, holding a real silver baton. And I thought this is a wonderful design because it's like a recipient receiving something from a donor, something very precious in the middle. And we all remember relay running mm-hmm. when we were at school. You know, I'm a PE teacher. I know that children Chaos. love doing the relay, <laughs> um, dropping, well. dropping the baton. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it would be a great uh, sporting memory. Graham was sporting, Tom, sports captain at school, a sporting image, lovely for Tom. And he said, we'd like to donate it to Transplant Sport. And then Tom's baton will go to the British Transplant Games, which is held annually, and will go to each host city. And perhaps it will help raise awareness. People will look at it. Oh, what's that beautiful sculpture for? Oh, it's Tom's baton, but it's about organ donation. It might make people talk about it. And one was designed as well for the World Transplant Games. I didn't even know that people competed in sport who had had an organ who were transplant recipients. But the World Transplant Games wanted one. And there was a World Transplant Games coming up in Newcastle. And they wanted me to do a relay with Tom's Batten from Whitechapel to Newcastle. And that's where the BBC heard about it and said, will you come on the Lorraine programme and share your story? Now, what an amazing interview was that? Live TV. Oh, you know about being in media, mm-hmm. Freddie, but live TV is very scary. You don't mm, get any anything retakes. Can happen. <laughs> yeah, there's no second takes. Oh, my goodness. But. On the morning of the first relay, so, so much happening, not sleeping at all, running on adrenaline. Christine, what a beautiful lady and so professional. The whole team had made sure she knew everything about organ donation and what I'd been through. And she was so genuinely interested about my story 
There was no rush. I wasn't being rushed off set. She asked all the right questions and was lovely. And, you know, at the end of it, she asked to have a picture with me on her personal phone. She said, can I have your picture? <laughs> I was, uh, me? <laughs> can I have that yours? that sultry Irish accent but of hers, yeah. if, through it, if it had done any good, again, I always hang on to this. Some of Graham's last words to me in that intensive care in Queen's Hospital, just moments before he, before he died... This is incredible and shows what kind of a person he was. And that's why Tom was like he was. Lise, keep Tom's memory alive. Now, at that point, I didn't let myself think that Graham was about to pass away, even though a doctor told me we don't think he's going to make it to the end of the day. I don't think I believed them. I don't think I listened. It went in one ear and out the other. But Graham said, keep Tom's memory alive. Sitting in front of the cameras and like we're doing now, that's what I've done ever since. Please keep Tom's memory alive. And there was Graham, even in his last words, thinking about others. And yes, talking about organ donation and doing the interviews and anything I can, Tom's story might make a difference to somebody else. And the chance to become an ambassador and share what happened has been life-changing for me. And it has given me something else to do, and I've loved it. But yes... Okay, it doesn't happen like it did recently in the programme, The Split. I don't know how many people watched that, but I was thrilled that organ donation came into that programme on, on BBC recently. However, you don't meet recipients that quickly mm, and that indeed. easily. <laughs> we realised, Pippa and I, after everything that had happened, right, what are we going to do next? We're told you can write to recipients. You can try and find out if you want to. You can write to recipients and find out how they are. And when we heard on the day of Tom's operation, we were phoned after the operation and we were told Tom's organs were exemplary. Well, they would be. Mm. He was 22, foot, yeah. very 22 fit, fit, very healthy, yeah. only the odd beer. We were told about the organ donation and then the tissue donation as well because it's organ and tissue donation. We were told you can write and you can find out. At the time, we were told part of Tom's liver went to a little girl in paediatrics. Obviously, the liver keeps regenerating. We heard that his heart went to a gentleman in Newcastle, so it was flown up or taken up really quickly. And again, of course, we did make our decision on organ donation fairly quickly in intensive care, which we found out later is important because the organs need to be in the best condition they can mm -hmm. be. Also, Tom was in the perfect place for organ donation. It's best if you're in intensive care and on ventilators so that they can make the preparations and the organs are healthy. But we found out you could write. And so we thought, Pippa and I, right, something we'll do. It's just after Christmas. We'll write and say, you've just received the best Christmas present you could have had from my brother or our son. And we wrote. And you can write, but you can't guarantee that you'll hear back. Some people don't write. They don't want to know. Donor families think, well, we just wish people luck and a happy life who've received organs. Other people do want to know. Some recipients can't find the words to write back mm. talk about knowing what to say they find it so hard to thank somebody for the gift of life the most precious gift of all but imagine our excitement when two cards came through the letterbox we did get some replies and one was from the little girl had had part of tom's liver from the mum who wrote to us she even put in photographs and video of the little girl before she received the transplant, what she looked like after the liver transplant and what she was like in hospital. And we had a wonderful card from the gentleman who received Tom's heart. So yes, I can tell you it took 
a couple of years, I would say, to actually meet recipients. The NHS are very careful. You're not allowed to share any personal information to begin with to protect both sides. It's very difficult, Freddie. It's difficult because you don't know what the people are like mm. who are recipients, but they don't know what the donor was like. And when we finally met the little girl and her mum, little girl was called Fatima and we met the mum and we'd seen that Fatima was two and a half years old she was so poorly so yellow in hospital huge swollen tummy and then all of a sudden she got part of Tom's liver and there she is up running around the ward with a balloon <laughs> having fun that was little Fatima the mum said to me when we finally did meet we wanted to say thank you but we wanted to find out more about Tom we wanted to find out about the young lad. We knew it was a young lad who had helped Fatima. We just presumed it was a lad perhaps who was joyriding and, and died in an accident in a car crash. We thought it was something like that. We didn't know about Tom. We didn't know about the beautiful boy he was, the hockey player, the intelligent, lots of friends, life and soul of the party, the wonderful brother. We didn't know. And now we're thrilled, just so thrilled that, that he's been able to help save Fatima's life but we wanted to say thank you to you and Pippa for making that decision she's now eight Fatima is now eight she then started school she's just adorable and Tom has given her eight more years of life and just like the gentleman who received Tom's heart Gordon Gordon was 60 when he received Tom's heart so not far off the age of Graham at the time he died and in one of the cards, one of the letters, he just let us know he was a West Ham fan. Well, would you believe it? Tom and Graham were both season ticket holders <laughs> at West Ham. <laughs> That's a surprise. Ha, the scarves are still hanging in the uh, in the lobby now. Well, wasn't that lovely to find out? And eventually, Gordon said, I'm coming down. I've got tickets for a game at the London Stadium. I'd like to come and meet you the next day as you live fairly near in Essex. And would you believe it, Pippa and I were going to that game as well. Some of Graham's friends who are season ticket holders, they're very, very kind. When somebody can't go, they'll let me buy their ticket or go along. And we happened to be going to that game. And Pippa said, we're going to go to a game in the London Stadium and Tom's heart is going to be beating somewhere in the stadium. She said, I can't go. That's surreal. But just hours before, she said, I can do it, Mum. Now, we hadn't met Gordon and we weren't going to meet him there, but we went to that match knowing Gordon was there in the stadium and Tom's heart was beating. How difficult was that? But we mm. did. And the next day, Gordon and his son, who lived fairly near, they came to our house and they knocked on the door and Gordon came in through the front door and it instantly went through my mind. I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought much about... What do I do? Do I cry? Do we hug? Whatever. The first thought was, Tom's come home. I just thought, Tom's come home. And of course, it was emotional. But it was incredible. And again, it's surreal to think the man sitting next to me with Tom's heart beating inside him. And he had a stethoscope with him so I could hear Tom's heart. It, it's just amazing. And... We just knew that we'd done the right thing. Pippa and I have had so much comfort from knowing Tom has saved and improved lives and from meeting recipients. We're so lucky. I'm so lucky that both Fatima's mum, Fatima and Gordon, decided they wanted to meet us because a lot of donor families don't find out 
and a lot of recipients don't meet their donor families and want to they want to know more but it has helped Pippa and I and I have nothing but joy and nothing but proud feelings for knowing that people are alive because of Tom and in my spreading of the story I'm just able to say to people please talk about organ donation we laughed about it over the dinner table once we, we'd laughed when I think Graham said uh, if anything happens to me organ donation or donate my body to medical science and it was Tom who said what dad your liver do you think really you, you know anything could help and that's all you do with organ donation if you do talk about it you might joke but people don't really touch on death or talk about organ mm. donation that conversation is so important because when we were in intensive care we asked to see an organ donor nurse a snod a specialist nurse for organ donation and she came in and she said tom's on the register tom's on the electronic register for organ donation he signed up as a fresher at university at the age of 18 and I was amazed. I wanted to wake Tom up and said, I'm so proud of you, Tom. But I found out they were at university at the Freshers' Fair. And I found the two boys he signed up with. Because I've kept in touch with a lot of Tom's friends, school and university, which has been so important to me. I think they've all taken Pippa and I under their wing. They, <laughs> they want to see us a lot. But the two lads he signed up for, he said, yeah, we were walking past a table. And Tom said, when he saw the sign for organ donation, he said, oh, lads, I need to do this. I've been meaning to do this for ages. And he signed up and I said, yeah, what did it say? Uh, something like, did he think he was going to get a doner kebab or something in a pint, you know, free doner kebab, not donor, but, you know, what the boys are like. But they signed up and that decision we found out Tom had made. And for us in intensive care, of course, because we knew Tom had signed up, we said yes to organ donation. I still don't know now what I would have done if Graham hadn't been around. I hope I would have said the same thing. But Graham talking about organ donation and making me think about it made me realise we would do it. But if you haven't talked about it before it happens, you might actually, as next kin, not know what to do and not make the same decision as we did and say yes, because you don't know what your loved one wants. If you're in intensive care, it's so traumatic. You never think you're going to be there. You're not thinking straight. If somebody is on the organ donation register, it helps. But it doesn't mean the next of kin are going to say yes. Mm. You need to have told your loved ones mm. that it's something you would do. And my message in organ donation and why I'm an ambassador is to make people think about it. And if anyone listening now, if they're listening in the car or wherever they are and they have their loved one next to them, if you just turn now and say, oh, you know, I'd do that if anything happened to me. You hope nothing will ever happen to you like that. But that little conversation, that little telling somebody that's what I would do too, is all it needs. And you can go on and save somebody's life mm. or give them the gift of sight or make somebody's life better. Now, Tom was going to be cremated or buried. I'm so glad we did what we did because, yes by saying yes to organ donation all that went ahead people have even said to me do you still have a funeral do you still have a body to bury you won't believe the questions i get well of course you do they they just so i should say respectfully the surgery tom had and people worry about the surgery they were so respectful with tom it's like having an operation and a and being returned to the family in, in the best condition they can return the body. Of course, Tom came back to us and we had the funeral, but that decision meant that there were organs there and tissue that could be used for somebody else and save somebody's life. And look, Freddie, 
what if one of my children or somebody in my family had needed an organ to survive? What if we'd needed organ donation from somebody else? Can you really expect to receive and not give? I think they do go hand in hand. Mm. And as a final question, Lisa, what has this journey taught you about yourself, do you think? Oh gosh, you haven't asked me that. What has it taught about myself? I think it's it showed me I've got courage I didn't know I had. I think it's shown me that I am still my own person. Sometimes when you become married and you have children and you become a mum, you go into mum mode, you go into wife mode, you you almost lose your identity for a little while, I suppose. And when the children grow up and you suddenly, children leave home and you go back to being just the two of you at home or maybe then your life changes a bit. And then I, when I lost Graham, I went back to write, who was Lisa Norman? I was Lisa Norman before I was Lisa Wilson. What kind of a person was I? What's happened to me and what kind of a person am I now? And I go back to how I was before. I was I was always playful. I loved my sport. I loved having fun. I loved being sociable. And for a while, Freddie, when all this happened, I withdrew. I didn't want to go out. I could have stayed with the curtains drawn at home, but of course I went back to work, but I, I changed. I became quite nervous about life, about talking to people, all the decisions you have to make on your own, all the decisions in a house. When something breaks down, something goes wrong, something else falls off the roof, another tile or something breaks down, the car breaks down or you need to change something. You don't have somebody else to say, well, what shall I do? And I can ask Pippa, but there are only certain things your your daughter can help you with. And I think I suddenly began to go back to the Lisa Norman, the person who knew what to do, the person who could cope on her own, the courage. What have I found out? Yeah, that that I can survive. I can find happiness and perhaps I can do some something useful with my life. I don't want to be known as the lady who always talks about organ donation. Mm. I don't always want to be thought of as Tom's mum because I'm Pippa's mum. I'm Pippa's mum too. And I'm Lisa Wilson. I am my own person. I'm not just Graham's wife. I'll be Graham's wife when I need to be. I'll be Tom's mum when I need to be. But I'm Pippa's mum. And I'm Lisa Wilson who, yeah, who is now thinking, what am I going to do next with my life? Am I going to travel? What else can I do while I'm still here on this planet? And that's me. And on that note, Lisa, it has been a pleasure. It's been a privilege to share your story on Treating You. Thank you so much for taking the time and chatting to me. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Treating You. We will include some links to where you can find out more about the Tom Wilson Memorial Fund registered charity 1171856 in the show notes. You can also go to their website, tomwilsonmemorialfund.co.uk. You can go there to find out more about Lisa's journey and we'll also include a link where you can watch the Lorraine interview she did and where you can sign up to the organ donation registry yourself. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on, share it on social media, and give us a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you're a journalist and would like to get in touch, please contact us at bartshealth.pressoffice at nhs.net or visit bartshealth.nhs.uk slash pressoffice for more information. Stay safe, look after yourselves, and we'll be back soon to treat you with another episode.